there are certain sounds that are just iconic. Sounds that are singular. That no matter where you are, when you hear them, they put you in a particular time or place. You know exactly what they represent the moment they hit your eardrum. Now, I'm not just talking about a catchy tune or something like that. I'm talking about a second, or maybe not even a second, of noise that's instantaneously recognizable. Something like this. Or perhaps something like this. Listeners of a certain age will certainly recognize this one. All those sounds were sounds of choice, chosen either because of artistic merit or technical necessity. But what about involuntary sounds? What about a sound made by an individual or a group that they can't help but make? Well, I think there's only one sound that would be that involuntary and, afterwards, that memorable. And I think it's this one. The Beatles! Bring them on! If you're familiar at all with the history of American pop culture, you know exactly what that sound is. It's Ed Sullivan introducing the Beatles for their first performance on an American stage. The distinctive voice of Sullivan, and then the ear-piercing shriek of dozens and dozens and dozens of teenage girls reacting to the band from Liverpool being introduced for the very first time. Except the sound that you just heard is not that. It sounds a lot like it. But the Beatles didn't perform live once on Ed Sullivan in February of 1964. They actually performed twice, in two different cities, within a span of one week. It will be that second performance, and events leading up to it, that will be the subject of our focus today. Not yesterday. This day in Miami history. February 13th, 1964. When, while it wasn't BOAC, the Beatles followed the sun and flew into Miami Beach and, with a little help from some friends, concluded their magical mystery tour of America before they got back home. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are two quick things I should tell you before we get into the meat of the episode today. First off, apologies for all the Beatles puns. I'm not going to do that again. Secondly, usually episodes here on This Day in Miami History are paid to things that are a little bit more obscure. I try to bring things to light that you may not be aware of, and you may not be aware of this either, but there's going to be a lot of attention on this anniversary in the next couple of days because of where the performance of the Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show took place, and that's the Deauville Hotel. The Doval has hosted numerous famous faces and names across the decades, but perhaps the visit by the Beatles is the best known. The current Doval was not the original Doval. That was built on the site in 1926. It would eventually be renamed the McFadden Doval after leaser and proto-fitness expert Bernard McFadden decided to go in on the business. There was some success, the original hotel became a kind of sanitarium for the 20th century, but eventually by 1956, the old was demolished, and in 1958, the new Deauville was opened. It was once one of the greatest hotels in the world, but in the last decade it has fallen into disrepair, punctuated by an electrical fire in 2017, and the building has been left vacant for years. The building, the Beatles, and all of the history doesn't appear enough to stop the wrecking ball. This from Kirk Pascal of the Miami Beach Preservation Board last month. You know, this is really is for all we say about amazing buildings in terms of an economic driver, in terms of uh, historical references and significance. This is absolutely devastating. Um, and, and so I'm just urging everyone involved uh, to try to salvage what we can um, yeah, I guess that's my plea. If you're interested in learning more about efforts to save the Doville, well, visit savethedoville.com. That's D-E-A-U-V-I-L-L-E.com. There's more history and information about a petition. If you'd like to learn more about the Beatles and the time they played and stayed at the Doville, we'll stick around. As I mentioned earlier, the Beatles kicked off their North American introduction on the studio of what is now the Ed Sullivan Theater, on Broadway in New York City. But that wasn't the only concert they played while they were in the United States. Two days after their Ed Sullivan debut, they appeared on the stage of the Washington Coliseum for a concert in front of about 8,000 fans. The next day, they returned to New York for two concerts at Carnegie Hall. It was a helter-skelter pace. Sorry, I promised I would stop referencing Beatles songs. But on February 13, 1964... The Fab Four boarded National Airlines Flight 11 from John F. Kennedy International Airport in Queens, headed for the Magic City. Flight attendant Carol Gallagher, who worked National Flight 11, recalled that Paul McCartney asked her, Do you think anyone will be in Miami to meet us? It seems like an insane question to ask now, but Beatlemania was in its very infancy, and a crowd in New York is one thing, but being able to convey a crowd in a smaller city at the time, like Miami, would be a true signal that the Beatles had arrived nationwide. 
and Miami didn't disappoint. The day was Thursday, February 13. The place, Miami International Airport. The time, 3.58. There's a chance. There's a chance starting out. You can imagine about 3,000 people screaming simultaneously, we want the Beatles. It's almost frightening, right, Jack? The number you heard was 3,000 there. The actual crowd estimate would wind up being closer to 7,000. Every parking spot then available at Miami International Airport filled. And so teens from across South Florida left their cars on the side of the road and walked in order to get a chance to see John, Paul, George, and Ringo. The voice you're hearing there is of Lee Sherwood. Sherwood, Charlie Murdoch, and Jack Sorby were live on the scene for WQAM. They were the only broadcasting outlet in the region that was able to provide live, on-the-scene coverage of the Beatles' arrival. 560, then owned by Stores Broadcasting and known as Tiger Radio, was the home of popular music. The station had helped the Beatles make it big in South Florida, and the Beatles were about to make the station the focus of attention for the next week. Beginning with the moment, they stepped off the plane. Here come the Beatles! Here they come! Here they come! There's Ringo! Who else we have there? There's George! There's Paul over there. Here they come, the four Beatles! They've stopped about halfway down. The crowd moves on. The police are trying to hold them back. This is the crowd that's on the apron. We're moving with them. They're trying to hold them back the best way we can. There go the WQAM sweethearts up there near the ramp. They're going to try to give them the kisses. The Beatles have stepped down to the bottom of the ramp. And there they go. They're getting ready to try to come through this enormous crowd here at Miami International Airport. Considering the response at the airport, you might expect the Miami Beach police would be ready for weeks with members of the department well-versed in the band and their fans to prepare for the throngs that were about to descend on the Doville and onto the city in general. Or you might expect this. What in the hell is a beetle? And what are you... You know, Captain Stewart, what do I got to do with Beatles? That almost cartoonish old-school policeman voice you hear is of Sergeant Buddy Dresner, who was in charge of security for the Beatles while they were on Miami Beach. While he wasn't quite familiar with the modern rock and roll music of 1964, he was familiar with crowd control. He had dealt with other celebrities when they had come through Miami Beach, particularly handling their transportation issues. And so earlier in the day... Miami Beach Police Department Captain Pete Stewart issued a memo to Captain Jesse Webb, letting him know that Police Chief Rocky Pomerantz had selected Dresner to oversee security for the Beatles. Dresner's past experience had gotten him the assignment from the chief, but it could not possibly prepare him for the onslaught that he was about to deal with. Uh, I picked my men, I picked four men in my mind that would... Two would be uh, with me, and two uh, I would use for the floor wherever they, they stayed. And, and he, I said, how many men did they use in New York? And the hotel up there, uh, you know, how did they handle this? And the hotel uh, manager said, well, they had uh, hundreds of, of uh, police and this and that. I said, well, you haven't got hundreds of police here. You haven't got all the police in the whole city. So I said, we'll work it by years. Honestly, you'll do yourself a huge favor if you go to YouTube and search for the Buddy Dresner interview I'm pulling from. I'll also include a link in the show description, but it really delivers. 
These are just some of the choice cuts from a quality interview with a lot of information about policing and the Beatles in Miami. Dresner became so integrated into the Beatles' Miami experience, he was literally staying overnight in the same room as George Harrison. And when the Beatles were ready to depart Miami after their Ed Sullivan performance, it was on WQAM that they had a particular shout-out for their new friend. The next voice you'll hear is that of Paul McCartney. So, uh, as well, and uh, very especially, I'd like to thank all the police... And uh, I know George has thanked them, and but especially Sergeant Buddy Dresner, who's been Capital great. Buddy! He took, took us up to his house for a meal. Had one of the biggest meals I've ever eaten, but uh, it was a wonderful one. Recall that in the first week that the Beatles were in the United States, they had performed in New York on the Ed Sullivan Show, taken a train to Washington, D.C., performed at Washington's Coliseum, gone back to New York City, performed two concerts at Carnegie Hall. All that in a span of four days. The Beatles were going to have one show on Ed Sullivan in Miami and basically a week of rest and relaxation or recreation or whatever they wanted to do. And while there were plenty of preparations for the second Ed Sullivan show appearance on February 16th, they wouldn't leave Miami until February 21st. Because of the obvious crowd control concerns, Dresner and the Miami Beach Police encouraged the Beatles to stay near the hotel and generally keep a low profile. But they were able to sneak out for a couple of extracurricular activities, notably swimming in the Deauville Hotel pool as well as the pool of a private home on Star Island, splashing around in the Atlantic Ocean on Miami Beach, going fishing off the coast of Miami, and paying a visit to a local boxer who was training at the 5th Street Gym, who had a heavyweight title opportunity at the Miami Beach Convention Center later that month. That boxer's name was Cassius Clay, who would soon come to be known as Muhammad Ali. They even managed to become fraternity pledges without ever attending a class. When the Gamma Phi chapter of the Sigma Chi fraternity at the University of Miami presented them the first honorary pledgeship, each one of them, John Paul, George, and Ringo, for, quote, services rendered to the youth of America. Here's John Lennon. And especially we'd like to thank the University of Miami, thank you, Paul, for giving us that plaque and make, making us a member of the fraternity. Not bad for a week's work. For all the talk of fun and games, the ultimate focus of the trip was the performance. On February 9th, 1964, in their first show on Sullivan, the Beatles had attracted approximately 70 million Americans. It was the largest television audience ever recorded to that point. And so tracking the ratings for the second night of performance from the Deauville Hotel on Miami Beach would be an important measure to see if the Beatles would have sticking power with the American public or if they would just be a fad that would fade away back to England. It of course seems like an obvious answer now, but to me, I don't think it was necessary to wait for the ratings to come out to identify whether this show would be a success for the Beatles or not, even though the numbers were still fantastic and it posted the second best number The Ed Sullivan Show had ever seen. To me, the test of whether this performance would show the Beatles sticking power comes back to that noise, the scream. It's remarkable how similar the sound is to the shriek from the crowd during The Beatles' first Ed Sullivan performance on February 9th, 1964. Whether this band was performing in Europe, New York City, or Miami, they were generating that same exact response. 
even before they had played a single note. The night was an unquestionable victory for Beatlemania. Eventually, the trip would come to an end. On February 21st, the Beatles would depart for New York City and then eventually return home to England. But they were changed. They had broke big in America. And America had changed too. It had entered into a new period of monoculture, driven by the Fab Four. To quote WQAM's Lee Sherwood again, at the conclusion of their recording of their coverage of the Beatles' arrival and departure from Miami. And so the Beatles came, they saw, and they certainly conquered all of South Florida. That they did. And the experience stuck with them. Traveling home and talking about how positive the Miami experience was in particular. What did you most like about the trip, Ringo? <laughs> oh, I just loved all of it, you know, especially yeah. Miami. The yeah. sun, you know. <laughs> I didn't know what it meant until I went over there. <laughs> Don't you get it up in Liverpool? No, they're, they're finished up there, you know. <laughs> Cut it out. The Beatles would obviously go on to have immeasurable success in their time as a band after 1964. But that moment in time, that month, that initial performance in New York, and that second performance here in Miami, unquestionably cast the die for the most influential band the world has ever seen. And from it would come dozens of songs that would make up the global soundtrack and a sound, a scream, a shriek that remains one of a kind, even to this day. Before I get into the thank yous for this episode, I do want to remind you, please visit savethedoville.com to learn more about preservation efforts of the Doville Hotel, this really important building in Miami's pop culture history. I'd also encourage you to check out mdpl.org, which is the home of the Miami Design Preservation League, with a huge focus on preservation on Miami Beach. Both are tremendous resources as the fight to protect the Doville rages on. I do want to thank a few very important sources for today's episode. That includes the invaluable Wolfson Archive, which I try to pull from basically every single episode. Uh, additionally, I want to single out a couple of really important Beatles Facebook pages that were incredibly helpful. Uh, as you can imagine, the social media presence of Beatles fans is pretty much second to none. First, I want to single out the page Buddy and the Beatles, which is a collection of information about the Beatles as it relates to our fine policeman friend from earlier, Sergeant Buddy Dresner, and the Beatles forever, and that's with the number four. Uh, it has a collection of both of the major Ed Sullivan show appearances of the Beatles. That was incredibly helpful for obvious reasons. Lastly, 560.org, which is an amazing repository of South Florida radio history as it relates to 560 WQAM. Again, if you're interested in broadcasting at all, you're going to want to check that out. I also want to take a moment to thank King Elizabeth. That's the band that created the song Miami Sunrise, the intro and outro music to this day in Miami history. As for us, I want to thank the new listeners this month, in particular those of you that heard us on WLRN Sundial, or those of you who have been noticing us on social media, it's really quite flattering. I also want to thank the listeners who've been with us since the beginning. It's really great to have you on board. The more, the merrier. Please remember to follow us on social media at This Day Miami Pod at basically every major social media platform. Follow us on your preferred podcast provider, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever it may be. And if you would be so kind as to consider leaving us a five-star review, I would really personally appreciate it. It's great for distribution of the podcast to new people who may be interested in listening to a show like this. So that will wrap it up for now. Again, thank you for your time. And as always, I've been Matthew Bunch. The high times and low times all in the nightlife. I am a surprise. Will open your eyes when the dark
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.